hey, look, everybody goes through bad periods of time, uh, times when they feel uninspired, times where they mm-hmm. feel like things are going to get better. The, the reality is, is life is so cyclical. If it's bad now, it's going to get good again, um, unless you continue to make really poor choices. Uh, and if it's good, it's probably going to get bad again at some point as well. And trying not to like judge those periods and just, you know, ride it as much as you can. This, I always tell people like, hey, look, the worst possible thing that could happen is I'm dead. And if I'm not dead, I've got options, right? So yeah, I would say that overall, I have been so fortunate to have like probably dozens of moments in my life that most people would just kill for ha- like one of those. Yeah. You know? Like I, I've had so many amazing moments there were, you know, culminations of like really long, arduous processes. And so I always tell people like, no matter what, like I'm going to ride this thing for everything it's worth, you know, like I, I've, I feel like I've actually had a pretty, you know, despite like me feeling like I've made a lot of mistakes, I feel like I've had a pretty epic life. And I always tell people, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to show up and play the game. And, uh, yeah. you know, that might mean I... I burned right. It might mean I crash and burn, but I'm going to go hard. So, look, the first thing I want to get into is kind of the, the concept of research versus experience. And obviously, how do you come to a decision when it comes to, I guess, educating the masses and also your own training philosophies and blending those two things together? Because I think a lot of people in the research space get a little bit of paralysis by analysis and don't apply it. And then conversely, there's too many people out there that sometimes just think, experience trumps all. So how do you marry the two up together? You know, I think um, I learned more about coaching by actually coaching than I did uh, from research, but I think research was still crucial. You know, I always say when you, like, if you build a house, um, you know, the stuff you see that's, you know, sexy that sells the house is the flooring and the kitchen and, and uh, you know, the, um, the windows and the, like all the, the paint. The, the marble bench tops. Right. The house doesn't stand up without a foundation. You know, yeah. to me, the foundation isn't sexy. Nobody really cares about it, you know, unless mm. something is wrong with it. Um, but to me, the foundation is like a basic understanding of, of science. And, you know, I think like it's important to be able to observe what happens with clients and draw your own conclusions. But at the same time, like you have to understand the concept of bias Mm. and also that, you know, you're not, you're not isolating variables, you know, like you're very rarely are we changing just one thing and they're holding everything else the same. You know, people don't, people don't really behave that way, you know? So it's like, you could add like an example would be like years ago, when I, I started squatting, you know, I went from squatting like once a week to twice a week. And I was like, you know, and I got better results. And then I went to three times a week and I got better results. And I was like, oh, it must be the frequency. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing like more frequent. I'm getting better at it. And then now if you look at the research, I mean, frequency might matter, but it's more of a tool to just distribute volume, you know. And so what I didn't understand was there was a compounding variable there, which was I was just doing more sets total, right? Um, and, and so I think it's easy to have an eye, like make a change and get focused on a variable that you're thinking about and then not think about some of the other variables. And at the end of the day, like, hey, it works. So, you know, we don't have to get super caught up and like, why did it work? But I do think it's important to ask the question of why something worked. And that's really where research gets into it. Coaching, you can observe that things work. But you always have to ask yourself the question, did it, a lot of things will work. It doesn't mean that they were optimal or that something else couldn't have been better. And I think that's what people don't necessarily think about. And also, I think people get really, uh, they don't understand the concept of selection bias either. So like, for example, um, I was, I was guilty of this. Um, you know, I thought, you know, like flexible dieting and, and macro tracking was the way for what was going to be the, 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 the future, you know, the path forward. And it was going to make everything easy for everybody. 
And unfortunately, because I was known as a flexible dieting guy, guess who I attracted? People who were already bought into flexible dieting. If you're an intermittent fasting coach or you're an intermittent fasting person, you talk about intermittent fasting, guess who's coming to you? People who are already bought into intermittent fasting. And then you get good results and then you go, oh, see, intermittent fasting is the best or flexible dieting is the best. And you don't, you're not attuned to the fact that they're seeking you out because it's what you talk about. So I think if you don't have that scientific background, it can be hard to ask those questions of yourself sometimes. And I do think that's what's really useful is having that scientific background so that you can critically analyze, you know, what is it that thing that I did or was it something else? And it helps you to prevent you from becoming dogmatic about certain things. Because we've all seen this with coaches. Go, well, this thing, this works. I mean, you know, cutting water is a great example. Well, and, I, and, I, and I think also like, you know, research actually, I mean, research changes too, right? I think like stuff that maybe people were saying 10, 15 years ago sometimes does get updated. Give us an example actually on that, like where I guess, because you talk about it quite a lot, like people getting quite dogmatic, right? It's like, you know, you must do keto or you must do this or you must do that. Give us an example where you've found something that you once believed in, which which has then become disproven that you've changed your opinion on. You know, I would say that I did a pretty good job over the years of if I had an opinion that ended up getting disproven, I probably never was. I don't think I was ever really strong with my opinion. You know what I mean? Mm. Like I never... I don't think I really planted my flag super strong, but there was some things that I changed my mind on. Yeah. Um, a good example of that was, um, you know, let's take intermittent fasting because I was kind of talking about it. I said, well, yeah. you don't want to do any kind of fasting because it's going to, you know, reduce your muscle mass and whatnot. And now do I, you know, if we look at the studies on like your traditional intermittent fasting, like a 16, eight style fast, um, there's a couple studies from Grant Tinsley where they've had them resistance trained. In, within their feeding window okay, and, and seeing that there's no difference in muscle mass. Now, mm. do, I, do I think that any form of fasting is the very best thing if you want to be the most muscular human possible? No. I think that's hard to pick out in a 12-week study, you know, differences in muscle mass. But it certainly yep. suggests that it's, you know, you're just not going to like start stripping off muscle because you're fasting, you know, or at least doing a mm. traditional fast. So I think – you know, that's something I've changed my opinion on where it's like, you know, hey, if you're not a bodybuilder, but you do want to build muscle, intermittent fasting is probably fine. But like maybe with these caveats, right? Uh, another one would be LDL cholesterol. I used to kind of say, well, it's not LDL cholesterol. It's your L, it's your HDL to LDL ratio that matters much more. And now we've had a slew of data that's come out showing that, hey, you know, if you increase your HDL, it doesn't really prevent heart disease it's just kind of a byproduct marker of being metabolically healthy so if you're metabolically healthy you'll probably have good hdl um mm. but if you raise or lower hdl it doesn't seem to really like if you raise or lower hdl independently like if you take drugs that raise or lower your hdl it doesn't yeah. seem to affect heart disease but if you raise or lower your ldl it does affect your risk of heart disease so i've kind of walked back you know my my opinion on that and there's been other things like i used to be a you know a proponent of branched amino acid supplementation, uh, fasted cardio. I've been on both sides of fasted cardio. Yeah. I said, you'll definitely do fasted cardio. And I've said, no, don't do it. It's going to strip off muscle. And now I go, doesn't seem to be better or worse. So just if you like it, do it. But it's yeah, exactly. If it fits in with your schedule to do it first thing when you wake up and then do it, right? Honestly, I, I think like a lot of the research is really pointing towards like personal preference, it's like it's so mm. – I think it's so unsexy that people don't like to talk about it, which is really dumb because if you have a personal preference for something or if you just like something, yeah. why would you not do that as long as it's not worse? You know what I mean? Like 100%. a lot of people, what happens is they, um, they do something, whether it's keto, intermittent fasting, plant-based, whatever, they get results on it. And instead of saying, well, I just, I like this, I like this, it works for me, they kind of retroactively do fuckery to try and, you know, explain why it's the best thing ever and everyone should be doing it. Yeah. And I think it's actually kind of like, 
an insecurity thing. Like mm. that person feels insecure about what they are doing. And so it's like they've got to get more people into it because it makes them feel validated. And it's like, yeah. why do you feel validated? It worked for you. So who cares? You know? Yeah. And I think that that is probably one of the problems with our industry is it's kind of that mindset Jenny comes from an individual coach or an influencer who waves the flag of their methodology, their method. And then all of a sudden, you know, everyone in their community has to follow it because it is the gospel. Yeah, exactly. You know? We just have you know, so many instances of where things have become dogma, you know, and another great one is, you know, like cutting water. That's one of my favorites for bodybuilding shows. Hmm. People say, well, look at all these IFBB pros do it. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, they feel like they have to because everybody does it. So it's like, yeah. have you ever yeah. seen the videos of like, um, there's a few prank videos where they get like, they're in a crowded area and they get like a half dozen people to start running and like pointing and like running. Guess what happens? Everyone runs. Like everybody runs. They don't know what they're yeah. running from, but they all run because humans are stupid animals. Like, they're, you know, yeah. like I'm not saying everybody's, uh, No, but like people will unfortunately like sometimes go with that herd mentality. And even if they know intuitively that that doesn't feel right to them, they'll just follow the person that's got the biggest personality and be, and be led. Uh, I think that's something that you've done. That's something that you've done really well over the last few decades. It's like just calling shit out, you know, Um, which kind of ties into it. Like a few other things I want to kind of go through. One of the things that we actually get in our ecosystem a lot is like, um, you know, veganism and fat loss and, you know, diets and stuff like that. Like, what is your thought process and what does the research show around kind of veganism in relation to like optimal human health, body composition, et cetera? What is your thoughts on that? So if you get enough protein in, uh, veganism doesn't seem to be worse um, than other forms of uh, of eating. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the difficulty is getting enough protein in, um, mm. there is concern over, you know, you probably need more protein if you're vegan, just because, especially if you're eating like intact plant sources of protein, uh, there's not as much bioavailability because the, um, the protein in some plant proteins is bound up in the fibrous material of the plant. And so you may only mm-hmm. have, like, you may be eating, let's say, 200 grams of protein a day, hard to get from intact plant protein. Um, but maybe you're, the, you're only getting about 70% of that's bioavailable. Um, now, it varies between the plant source. So what I will say is, I, you know, I used to say, man, you got to supplement with some animal protein. Like, I, I would say, you know, like whey protein or whatever. Now, I think there's enough evidence, like, that if you combine some good sources, like soy and pea protein, um, mm you know, that, that you can get enough protein, enough high quality protein. Um, I would just say it's probably going to be hard to, to do without it, like supplementing with an isolated source of protein. If, if the goal is to be like as muscular as possible, like lean body mass. Is like a big yeah. I mean, we, we used to back in our gym days when we had clients, like anyone that came in from a, you know, vegan perspective, it was like, yeah, some sort of uh, essential amino acid or something like we generally found that would be, you know, need that and, and maybe deficient in something like zinc or whatever. But yeah. w- what would you say then like on those, uh, on the protein intake, like what type of data are you looking at at the moment in terms of like, how do you calculate the amount of protein a client should be having? And is that kind of based on whether they're a beginner client, an athletic client, like, you know, talk to us about kind of that. Um, you know, I think for, Protein requirements really aren't that different across the board. It's mostly based off of lean mass, at least from what Mm -hmm. we understand. Um, You know, I I would say the research says 1.6 to 2.4 grams per kilogram of body weight. Uh, If you want to do it based on lean mass, it's probably closer to like, you know, two to three grams per kilo of lean mass. Um, You know, I tell my clients, if you don't mind protein, uh, if you like it or whatever, there's really no downside to just airing towards that, that higher end. Um, I don't know if the, the benefits of protein ever completely cap out, you know, with um, as you increase, I think what happens is 
they become so incremental. It's kind of like, I don't know if you ever heard of an asymptote, but in mathematics, basically you have a, like, if it's, if like we have a Y axis is the benefits and the X axis mm -hmm. is protein intake, as it goes up, those benefits start to cap out. Yeah. And they may continue to go up, but it basically becomes so small of an increment of improvement that it's it basically you can't tell. So what I'll say mm -hmm. is, you know, if you get two grams per kilogram of lean mass, you're probably getting 95% of the benefits. If you are, um, you know, up to three grams per kilogram, you're probably at 99.99% of the benefits. You know, like it's, it's, it really, mm -hmm. you're, you're really capping out uh, at that point. So that's kind of- so let's, let's, let's just say like the goal is 200 grams of protein per day. Do you have an optimal kind of breakdown of, or like meals frequency that I should be taking that through, for example, as a, as a human being? Like, are we wanting to spread that out over three meals, five meals, six meals? Like, what is the upper threshold that like human beings can actually digest per serving? Um, well, there's no limit on digestion. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so digestion, absorption, people kind of like, they conflate these things, you know, they say, well, how much mm -hmm. can you absorb? You absorb basically whatever the bioavailability is, you know, if you're, if you're, um, even if you eat a ton of it. So the research, there was some animal studies on this, um, because you can't, this is really difficult to do in humans. Cause you've got to use like, um, you basically have to like be sampling amino acids in the, yeah. in the, in the colon, as well as in the small intestine. And that means you've got to put like, basically like, you know, a colostomy bag, like you're never going to get past the IRB to do this in people. But in, in uh, animal models of this, what they tend to see is if you ramp up your protein intake, what happens is your digestion of that protein just slows down basically enough for your body to accommodate the high level of protein intake. But you absorb mm. all of it, I mean, based on the bioavailability, right? Like if the bioavailability is 70% because you're eating a plant protein, you're absorbing 70%. Um, but, you know, if the bioavailability of animal proteins, most of them go above 90%. If you're eating those, you're going to absorb, you know, over 90% of it just based on the bioavailability. Um, and so well, people, I think the question really is, is like, what is, what is the anabolic cap on a meal, right? Like what is contributing towards building? Yeah. And, that, and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you why, cause like when you were out here and when you, you know, we were eating dinner and stuff like that. And at the time I was doing the one meal a day, right? right. Um, that's, that's when you made me feel insecure, insecure about my um, eating disorder. Uh <laughs> 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 and um and so but like actually you know uh because you're like you know you're gorging and I'm like, well i'm only eating one meal a day so obviously i'm fucking hungry when i eat my meal but i actually reflected on that after you went and so uh since you've been gone i actually uh, switched to still eating the same amount of calories but just eating it over four meals a day uh -huh. right and so i've actually found since eating the same amount of calories over four meals a day i've actually dropped body fat Interesting. So like what, you know, so, you know, still doing 2,500 calories, but now I'm doing it over four meals a day, kind of, you know, so what would you, like hearing that, what would you attribute that to? Because I haven't really changed any other variables in terms of my steps or my exercise or anything like that. Yeah, I actually don't know because, um, you know, the research suggests that, you know, meal frequency doesn't really make a difference for when it comes to fat loss. Um mm. It hasn't been massive. Like it's it's been about what one point five, two point two, so about uh, one and a half kilos, two point two. So what's that? Like six pounds or some shit like that over last month. Yeah, that's good. Impressive. I mean, you know, I could like, um, you know, I could um, speculate. You know, it hmm. may be that you know you feel better, and so you're you know you're you're kind of like subconsciously not even not realizing it like moving more fidgeting more that sort of thing mm. um mm. It, you know also protein has a thermic effect one of the one of the downsides to like omad one meal a day or uh, intermittent fasting is people don't usually get in the same amount of protein that they would get in if they were having more yeah food, right because like if you're eating if you're you know focusing on 200 grams of protein a day you're trying to eat that in one meal that's a lot of protein in one meal you know what I mean? 
Yeah, I think that actually probably might be it because obviously, you know, you have one meal a day, you're kind of filling up. There's only a certain amount of protein that you can tolerate in one fucking sitting. Yeah, like just, you know, even if you like meat, like there's only so much that, 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 you, that you can eat. But I mean, yeah, look, I've, I've found for me since switching to that, it's um, definitely made just a, a subtle difference to, you know, what I've been doing, which I, I'd kind of go another kind of topic I want to touch base on. And I know there's been kind of conflicting and or minimal research around this over the years. Um, nutrition for somatic types. This guy needs some protein. Yeah. <laughs> but nutrition for somatic types. So, yeah. like, is there any evidence to kind of support the different type of nutritional systems for, you know, different, you know, if someone's an endomorph, ectomorph, mesomorph? Um, and then what is your kind of, you know, empirical experience around that too? What, what would you yeah, – I, I just kind of um... – make recommendations based on that. I think those have largely been kind of debunked um, in the science of roots or the idea of a, you know, there's a really funny uh, image you can go to. It's like shows Christian Bale and Jared Leto, uh, two actors who, have, you know, if you look at Christian Bale, when he played Batman, Mesomorph. Yeah. If you looked at when he played in the, what was it? The Machinist, he, Ectomorph, you know? Yeah. And then if you look at him when he played, uh, what was it? Uh, Dick Cheney in that movie. Endo. You know, yeah. so I think, um, you know, there are people who tend to be a little bit bigger by default, a little bit, you know, skinnier by default, but it doesn't really appear to be like a genetics. Well, maybe it is genetics based thing, mm. but you can take somebody who's an endomorph and make them look like an ectomorph or make them look like a mesomorph. Right. So yeah. I think the idea that the phenotype is tied to the genotype could be wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't really you know, again, I think protein recommendations really just need to be tied to, you know, lean mass. Mm. Irrespective of where it's at, yeah. And another thing is this whole concept of like, um, you know, insulin resistance, you know, which is kind of, you know, people like, okay, well, you shouldn't have carbs and stuff like that. Firstly, like, can you explain to the audience what actually insulin resistance is? And then secondly, how that kind of plays into – plays into the type of nutrition that the you know people should be consuming so there's basically two forms of diabetes the first form of diabetes type 1 diabetes is where you do not produce insulin and that causes mm -hmm. your blood sugar to rise because you have no insulin to drive it back down right type 2 diabetes uh, which is, insulin resistance is the precursor to is where you do produce insulin but your body becomes insensitive to it and so you, a normal amount of insulin will no longer suffice for disposing of uh, glucose. Mm. And so your, your basal insulin levels go up, your, your, um, your uh, meal insulin goes up, but at a certain point, you still can't get your blood glucose back to a normal level. So yep. that is insulin resistance. When you're secreting a normal amount of insulin, but your blood glucose is still elevated. So, yep. and I'm not talking about elevated acutely, like I'm talking about like your basal levels of blood glucose are elevated. And then if you eat a meal, like if you do an oral glucose tolerance test, you know, typically in OGGT, um, you see uh, you'll, if 70, you take 75 grams of dextrose or glucose, um, you get a spike and it comes back down. And usually you've cleared all that by about three hours, two to three hours is usually what a healthy person clears that in. But what you'll see is the area under the curve for somebody who's insulin resistant will be much greater. Right, because yeah. the, the the peak amplitude is higher, and it, it takes longer to clear. So that's yeah. kind of what you're dealing with. And now, why are we concerned about that? Well, um, your if you have chronic exposure to high levels of glucose, um, and I'm not talking about oh, you eat some carbohydrates, your blood glucose goes up, and it comes back down. Those short term fluctuations aren't really anything to be worried about. But if you're chronically having high glucose, um, that is very toxic to the endothelial uh, cells, um, and it's a very, very high risk uh, for cardiovascular disease and a whole host of, of other problems. Uh, and high blood glucose tends to dysregulate everything else, like you start to have high blood lipids uh, and impedes mm -hmm. all kinds of cellular signaling, and you get all you get into this negative feedback loop. Um, mm. where you're really, you know, having a lot of things getting messed up. Now, how to treat that, 
about 70 to 80% of the improvements in insulin sensitivity are just going to be due to weight loss. Like if you lose weight, that's going to give you the vast majority of the benefits. Exercise also helps. Um, But the idea you need to eat low carb, here's what I'll say about low carb. If you eat low carb, uh, you will have a drop in blood glucose faster. Okay, so mm. over the first four weeks, low carb will win. But if you so looking out, at it as a looking at it as a kind of um, a therapeutic tool to use initially to start turning the tide in the other direction. Right, but if you look out like six mm. months, really what it boils down to is how much weight you lose. Um, most yeah. measures. If you lose the same amount of weight, most measures at six months aren't different uh, between low carb or even high carb diets, as long as you know calories equated and weight loss the same. So what that says to me is, okay, if uh, low carb is sustainable for you, great. If you if you want to do that, great. But really, we need to focus on this long term sustainability because that's what's going to produce the majority of the results. Um, I'm not. Mm. I mean, you know, obviously, you can get your blood glucose down faster. That's a little bit better. But really, we need to be looking at the long term. What I don't want people doing is doing low carb because they feel like they have to do low carb. And then like they rebound and now they're back in the position they were in. We should still be looking at this from a sustainability perspective. And um, some people have said, well, you know, if you're insulin resistant, you can't lose weight uh, eating carbohydrates and uh, you you need to do low carb. So we actually have a meta-analysis of where they compared – um, people who either had insulin resistance or didn't uh, on the same calorie deficit and, and they showed mm. that they did the exact same. Like they lost the same amount of weight. So this idea that weight loss yeah. is harder when you're insulin resistant is not true. Um, and the idea you need to go do low carb is not true. Although low carb may offer a slight advantage uh, in the initial phases of weight loss. And that's, yeah, like, I mean, look, clinically, you know, back in our gyms, we used to, and sometimes we used to get a bad rap for it. It's like people would be like, oh, you guys are only giving low carb. I'm like, no, we're not. We were use, we'd use it initially as a therapeutic tool for that first kind of three, four-week period, um, you know, provided the client was committed to their, their goal. And then once they'd had that initial momentum and had adapted to it, then we'd reintroduce, you know, more carbohydrates and, and give them the flexibility to do basically what they want to do. But the other, I think, key variable with um, insulin sensitivity is weight training. So talk to us about that and the role that uh, weight training plays compared to, say, cardio. Because you get people, they come in, they're like, okay, I'm going to come in and and do low carb and then run every day compared to someone who is maybe going to, like, focus on their food and then do weights. Talk to us about the benefits of weight training and insulin sensitivity. So I will say that any form of exercise is absolutely better than no exercise. No question about it. Um, yeah. on, a, on a short-term basis, resistance training is probably not that much better than cardiovascular training uh, if you're doing the same – like if you equate work essentially yeah. um, or you equate energy expenditure. However, for the long term, what, what resistance training does is build lean tissue – Skeletal muscle is very energetically um, needy uh, compared to uh, <laughs> tissues. And so, you know, I, I hate using like really general terms, but skeletal muscle kind of becomes like a metabolic sink. It just, it gives you more, it gives mm. you more places to do stuff, right? Like if you have high levels of skeletal muscle mass, um, you know, you, you can dispose of more glucose. You can dispose of more free fatty acids. Yeah. You can dispose – like it, it's harder to get these things elevated in your bloodstream and cause some of these problems. And we even see that with athletes who are obese, you know, like offensive linemen and such. Um, they still, on, on average, if they have higher skeletal muscle mass well, – if we, if we take two obese people, if we take obese people on average and we and – we, we equalize them on their fat mass, right? But mm. one group has more muscle mass. On average, the group that has more muscle mass will be in better metabolic health than those who have less muscle mass. So you actually, you, tr- you, yeah, you triggered something I heard recently from uh, Peter Atia, where he spoke about um, some some re- research or something around sumo wrestlers. 
and how obviously sumos are, you know, they're not, they're definitely not stage ready, no. but they're, <laughs> but they've got so much muscle on them that um, metabolically speaking, they're a lot healthier than people give them credit for. Yeah, you can, uh, I guess the, the phrase I would use is you can get away with more, you know, get away with more when you have more muscle mass. Mm. And and keeping on this topic of like insulin sensitivity, resistance and all that type of stuff and longevity, kind of what is the research showing around this um, in regards to kind of, you know, optimal human health? Well, when it comes to insulin resistance, it's probably one of the worst things that can happen for your health. I mean, it's it's pretty far up there. I haven't. I have to look through the, some of the data to, to really quantify it. Um, mm-hmm. But I believe like after, after like heavy smoking, um, you know, high blood glucose and insulin resistance is probably one of the worst things you can do for your health. Um, yeah, wow. you know, it, is it, some people have argued that, you know, that portion of it is actually what's unhealthy about obesity. You know, that it's really the, the insulin resistance and high blood lipids that, that makes, you know, obesity dangerous. Now we do have new research that's come out in the last 10 years that showed that even if you have, even people who have like healthy blood work, if they're obese, they have a higher risk of mortality than people who are um, Mm. not obese. So, uh, but I will say, you know, if you have, uh, if you have, if you're insulin sensitive and obese, you're still better off than being obese and non-insulin sensitive. So I think yeah. a lot of people, you know, that's, 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 I think one of the things I do well is nuance, you know, and, and kind of explaining these things and not being dogmatic about it. Um, mm. You know, a lot of people just tie everything together. And so I do think it's important to point these out, you know, that like, hey, there's, there's kind of levels to this and you really yeah. have to like make appropriate comparisons, you know. Mm. Well, kind of change kind of gear here. One of the areas that probably isn't as well researched around nutrition, I would say, is, um, you know, when it's applied in the context of like PEDs, right? So when people are on PEDs or anabolics or steroids or whatever it is, and how nutrition, I guess, works in that ecosystem or environment. Um, do things change, nutritionally speaking, when someone is on PEDs, you know, uh, you know making all things equal? I love this question. Now, Mm. I will qualify it by saying I am going to speculate because there really aren't a whole lot of studies looking at people Mm. taking, you know, for obvious reasons because it's hard to get approval through an IRB for this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, So what I will say is, you know, the obvious one that people bring up is, well, you need more protein when you're on PEDs because you're building so much more muscle, right? You got to have more protein to support that. Mm. Well, let's examine that. So I think we can agree that like um, even on steroids, like 25 pounds or like let's say uh, 12 kilos of, of skeletal muscle, that is a lot of muscle to add in a year, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, if, we, if we back that out, let me just get my trusty calculator here. If we back that out and we consider 12 kilos, um, 70% of that's fluid because even if you put on pure muscle, 70% is fluid. Mm. So only, so let's see, so, let's see, 12 kilos times 0.3 is the dry tissue weight. Cat, get off that computer because you'll turn it off. This is my new cat, everyone. Say hi, <laughs> Okay, so that's 3.6 kilos of of skeletal muscle, dry of contractile tissue or, or dry tissue. Mm. Then, so that's 3,600 grams, right? If we divide that by 365 days, we get, you need an extra about 10 grams of protein a day to support that. Okay. okay? So, okay. If you're worried, half three grams per kilogram of lean mass plus 10 and you're covering, you know, so, I, I don't buy this whole you need five to six hundred grams of protein because you're building so much tissue. No, you don't. And I very much doubt you actually need an extra 10 grams anyway. But if you want to be, you know, 
if, if you want to be safe, you know, add 10 grams, add 20 grams for all I care. But, you know, you don't, yeah. you don't need a drastically increased amount of protein. Um, the other one is like calorie intake, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, you're, you're building more lean tissue. That is an energy exp- uh, expensive process. So it probably does raise your energy expenditure. So you may need some more calories, uh, you know, but again, it's probably not. Like on, on, the, on that one. On that one, just to jump in, like, so let's just say, and again, uh, understanding, you know, this would be just based off hypotheticals and, and your experience, but if someone is on anabolics and they're going through a bulking phase and, and with what you've just said, and, you know, normally a, a natural person might be in a 10% surplus. Yeah. For argument's sake. If someone's on anabolics, is that a 15% surplus? Maybe. What I would say is, you know, just monitor your body weight. And if on average it's not increasing at the rate you want, increase your calories. I mean, it might, I think at best it's probably like a, a couple, maybe a couple hundred calories a day. Probably not even. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, your mileage may vary. So, pay, you know, again, this is the beautiful thing about if you track data, if you're looking at your average body weights over multiple weeks, you can see whether or not it's increasing at the rate that you want. You can adjust accordingly. That's why using an app like Carbon is so important. Yes, go download Carbon. <laughs> Click the link in, uh, below, guys, as well. Uh, you know, if you, if you want to get access to Lane's up there. Um, but but side note on that. Is my emotional so, Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. Um, so with that, though, we're talking about bulking. Like on that topic, like what are some mistakes that people generally make when it comes to to bulking? You know, putting on muscle. You know, stuff like that. Like, what are some of the common mistakes you see? Three mistakes. First one, they do not do it long enough. They start mm. to gain a little bit of body fat, get uncomfortable, and immediately go into a cut. That's the first yeah. one. Second one, not willing to accommodate enough body fat gain. So I always tell people, if you're not willing to accept a relative increase of 30%, then don't okay. even bother trying. What I mean by that is if you're – I'm not saying like go to 30% body fat or add 30%. Yeah, yeah. What I'm saying is if you are 10% body fat and you are not willing to go up to 13, which is 3% increase and 3% is 30% of 10%, mm. right? Uh, then don't even bother with it, you know? And then the, mm. the next thing, and that kind of ties into like not doing it long enough. And then the final thing is a lack of patience. So what I found so often, and it's so counterintuitive, and this is why human beings are such dumb animals. We don't do things logically. We like to think that we're logical, but we're just dumb creatures like every other, you know, sentient being. Um, So what we do is we don't like the idea of gaining body fat, but then like, you know, your weight, anybody who's ever done a really controlled bulk knows this. Like I'm just going to be in a hundred calorie surplus. That means, you know, every five weeks I'm gaining a pound or every five weeks I'm gaining half a kilo. It doesn't work like that. It's like the first week, you gain nothing. Second week, you gain nothing. Third week, you gain a half kilo. And you go, what the hell, right? So you're, mm. even if you're taking the averages, your weight can bounce all around. And people get discouraged by that. And what they tend to do is go, fuck it. Um, I'm just going to increase the speed at which I bulk so I can get through it faster. And they put on a bunch of unnecessary body fat. And they go, oh, well, I got to the end. Stupid, 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 stupid way to do things. Um, you have to be patient. You have to be way more patient in a gaining phase than you are in a deficit. I mean, I look at people and they go, oh, fat loss is so hard. And not really. You're, you're honestly, like you are getting, if you are being adherent, you're going to be getting positive feedback pretty quickly. Because um, you, I mean, you can see visual changes on week to week during fat loss. You are not going to see visual changes, at least not the good visual changes week to week on a bulk. So I think that's really, you know, if I had people who want to like build a really good physique, especially drug free or uh, people who are competitors, I always told my competitors, hey, shows are one in the off season. Any, anyone can starve themselves for 12 weeks and get shredded for stage. Okay. Mm. Not anyone, but you know what I mean? But the people who really do well, who make improvements, you know, competition after competition, are people that put in the time in the off season. 
and maintain their focus in that time too. And so I think a cons- consistency in the gaining phase is very, very underrated. And you made a good point, like point when you said they don't do it for long enough. Like, what is long enough? Like, if, if you if, let's just say let's use let's you use you and I. We're in our forties, men. And over the next 12 months, I want to put on a few kilos of muscle and, you know, stay the same amount of body comp or, or less. Like how, how, how long are we talking here? Um, you know, I, I would say especially as, as your training age gets up there, you're going to have to go for longer, you know, because it's, okay. it's very hard to induce that growth signal when you've been doing it for so long. Um, mm. And so and if you don't want body fat to increase, you're going to have to be pretty conservative with the rate that you do it. So mm. you know, I would say, you know, like, for example, if I was like, okay, I'm going to try and put on some lean mass, like dedicated gaining phase. The reason I, I haven't really done that recently is because I'm in a, a weight class for powerlifting where I don't want to get too far outside that. Um, you know, I'd be looking at at least 12 months if I wanted to put on like an actual one okay. or two like kilo or like if I want to put on like a half kilo or a kilo of, of lean mass, I mean, I'd be looking at least only 12 to 18 months but I'm been so, for 20 years, you know, like it's not mm. me putting on that amount of lean mass. It's going to require a lot of hard training and a lot of consistency and dedication. I think it's a really good point because a lot of people, it's like, okay, I'm going to do a bulk phase, but a bulk phase for a 40-year-old that's been training for 20 years compared to a bulk phase for a 25-year-old that's been training for five years are two very different things, right? Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, you make a great point. Like, hey, if context you're, matters. If you're a year in, you know, three to six months might be enough to put on a few kilos of, of lean mass. Mm. You know, when you've been doing it for 10, 15, 20 years, like it's not that easy, you know? Um, yeah. And then that gets into the, like, well, how do you know when you hit your genetic limit? You don't. <laughs> you don't. There's no way to know. So you might as well go hard. And what, one of the things people talk about, you know, during a bulking phase in and, and fat loss phase too, but is that whole concept of refeeding, right? Like it, talk to, I guess, you know, the science around refeeds, but then more practically, like, you know, is that a tool that you coach with clients that you deploy? Like I know you talk about it in your, you know, BioLane nutrition certs, but like top level for the audience. So I was big on refeeds, you know, 10, 15 years ago. Um, now I, I filed that under personal preference. There's really no data to suggest it's superior to kind of just eating the same thing every day, like physiologically. Mm-hmm. But like a lot of people, like it can fit into your lifestyle well. A lot of people like to have more calories on the weekends, you know, during a fat loss phase. So you have a little more flexibility to either have a few drinks, go out with friends, you know, all that kind of stuff. So – you know, I, I think it's it's fine to incorporate, but I, you know, there's just really no evidence it's better. Yeah. Okay. And another thing then around reverse dieting, it's you know such a vogue term. Like, what are people? Well, firstly, what is the science supporting it? But then, uh, more importantly, how how can people actually uh, apply it correctly? Because I think that's the biggest mistake people do is they don't apply it correctly. Yeah, there's really no direct research on it, um, but there are some like controlled feeding studies where they've shown that, like for example, if you overfeed and like a, a very if you overfeed above maintenance in a very small amount, mm. that there's very little fat gain, um, and that it's mostly lean. Uh, whereas, like if you get more and more aggressive, more and more like calories, like you know, thirty, forty. 50, 60% over maintenance, that the majority of which is deposited as body fat. Yep. Um, there's also evidence that like as your caloric intake goes up, that you get spontaneously more active, your meat goes up, um, mm. your total energy expenditure goes up. But I mean, at least anecdotally, it seems to be very quite variable from person to person. So I've had people like, you know, I've reversed them from, you know, 1,400 calories up to, you know, 2,500 and they haven't gained like a single you know, like a single ounce. Um, okay. And I've had people who have, you know, kind of linearly and steadily gained, you know, weight throughout that period of time. So, you know, I, I think it's, 
I've come back off of it as being like, okay, this is how everybody should do it. You know, yeah. Not necessarily everybody. But again, I just kind of look at it as a tool and a tool belt. And, you know, at the end of the day, a good reverse diet and a good lean gaining phase are going to look pretty similar at the end of the day. So, mm. um, you know, I used to think that, oh, well, if you reverse diet, you can get your BMR, you know, much higher. We now have, you know, quite a bit of evidence to suggest that your BMR probably doesn't increase that much other than just any increases in lean mass. Um, and yep. that if there is an increase in your daily energy expenditure, it's probably due to like becoming spontaneously more active. But that that can happen. Like I ha- I've had people who they were, you know, eating 1,600 calories a day, 1,700 calories a day, couldn't drop body fat. And then we increased their calories a little bit. And all of a sudden, a few things happen. They get more consistent with things. They don't have blowouts because mm-hmm. they don't feel so restricted. Um, they can train harder and they become spontaneously more active. So we've actually had people drop quite a bit of body fat and people will say, oh, well, they just got more in here and they moved more. And Okay, cool. It's still working. Yeah. And they probably, they probably got happier eating a bit more freaking food too, right? That's true. That's true. I like to say low calories make people crazy. Yep, yep. Well, look, I, I want to kind of um, flip the switch from nutrition and actually kind of come into a little bit more about you, Lane. So like, you know, around kind of mindset, business, like talk to us, like what does a day in the life look like for you in 2023? Obviously, you've got multiple businesses juggling kids, everything going on. What does a day in the life look like for Lane? Assuming no travel or outside fuckery. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Correct, yeah. A, a, a normal-ish day. Not that you and I do fucking normal, but like a normal type of day. Uh, usually I'm up at like 6.30 or 7. Um, yep. Like right now it's summer, so the kids don't have school. Uh, if it's, if yep. it's during the school year, I'm usually up at like 5.45 or 6. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and do you have any any kind of routine that you start your day with? Like, uh, If I get up and the kids don't get up with me, I'll usually go and I'll get a cup of coffee and I'll sit outside and I'll, you know, kind of just enjoy the sunrise. Um, you know, sunrise is behind my house, so I'm kind of looking at the sun glaring on the water over here. Um, you know, so I'll, like, enjoy the sunrise. I'll kind of, like, look through my emails and messages while I do that. Like, just – like low energy business stuff. Um, yep. Then I'll like, you know, eat a quick breakfast. I'll make the kids breakfast, whatever they want. Um, I'll start to kind of like pick up around everything, uh, get the kids ready. Um, nanny will come around eight o'clock. Uh, both kids have summer camp. So she takes them to summer camp. I start work. Usually I'll start out, um, you know, I'll do, like I'll do some story posts in terms of like whatever I'm promoting that day. Then I'll, uh, you know, sit down, answer emails. I'll look over the uh, company finances. I, I usually do like um, check on the bank statements like pretty much every day, just cause I'm, I, I want to make sure that there's no, you know, um, that there's no like theft or anything like that. Not from like, a have, anything, but. have you, have you, and actually I'll, Oh, jump in on that. Have you changed your approach to kind of like as your business has grown and you've obviously got multiple education, supplements, apps, have you become more, and well, I know the answer to this, but how have you become more financially astute throughout that process? How, how have you transitioned from becoming just a, a coach to a, a business owner? Well, I think, you know, I do a lot more, uh, kind of like 10,000 foot view of things as opposed to being in the nuts and bolts of things every day. You know, mm-hmm. so kind of, you know, really if there's an issue, it, it's getting brought to me by uh, Samantha, our COO, or my personal assistant, Caroline. Um, you know, they they really kind of like act as my shield uh, so that yeah. I can just focus on what I'm good at, which is reading studies, doing content, um and like just you know responding to emails and messages and stuff. Of course. Um, yeah. So that's 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 kind of like I I've really focused on like just keeping myself educated on like the most recent research. Um, mm-hmm. I do still have a few clients, but I I can it's like five people and I get them done in, you know a few hours uh, per yep. week. So um, you know I'll, I'll do those things. I usually have like one or two business calls per day with 
you know, various business partners like yourself or um, my partner at Outwork or, um, you know, uh, Carbon or, or, or whatever it may be. Uh, not so much there lately, but, um, you know, there were times where we were meeting weekly. So, like, all that sort of stuff, you know, meetings, I'll usually – uh, and, and then, like, whenever I'm working on, like, if I'm working on a book, if I'm working on some kind of project, um, mm. you know, those sorts of things. A lot of times, I'm just like, honestly, I, I sit on social media a lot, just because I'm wanting to see like what's hot right now that I could touch on and do content on, because that always makes the best content. You know, like, for example, when um, the uh, WHO a few weeks ago said they were going to put aspartame in the category of a possible carcinogen. I did uh, content on that very quickly because I yeah. knew it would get a lot of traction because everybody's talking about it. It's a big topic mm. of discussion. And so like one thing I was, I was kind of like saying this in our PCA group, people like somebody said, Oh, I'm you know, planning out my content calendar for three months. I understand that concept and I think it's fine to have a framework. I think that's totally fine. Yeah. I admire that. But I think structured flexibility in all things, because if you're locked in for three months, you're really going to miss out on the best content you could put out there, which is, you know, hitting on something while it's hot. You know, like um, mm. when I did the when the Game Changers came out, the documentary that was kind of like very like pro veganism. You know, I got a lot of followers by hitting on that repeatedly in a short period of time. You you were at, you were at my house, my old house then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah. you know, I, I I do sit on social media a lot for that reason, uh, and mm. also I try to respond to as many people as I can, just because I I like helping. Um, mm. So I'll do all that. But just, just I'll, I'll add to that just quickly. I saw your post today in the community, and like I've been doing a lot more stuff personally on social recently myself, as I know you know, but. And I'm obviously very OCD and structured type person, but I saw your post. I'm like, fuck, he makes a good point there. And and I, I can't not uh, take on your advice there because it's clearly worked for you. Um, I think, you know, be, being able to kind of react to what is out there now as a creator and kind of get on the, the viral bandwagon. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's there's, there's pluses and minuses to everything. Like, obviously, you don't want to just mm. – like I, I don't completely fly by the seat of my pants. I 90% fly by the seat of my pants, but I do have like, okay, Monday I usually do like some kind of meme. Tuesday I do a reel of like yeah, motivation yeah. or you know training or something like that. Wednesday uh, I do an educational reel. Thursday I'm usually doing some kind of like educational screenshot on my Twitter. Uh, Friday I'm doing a what the fitness reel. Saturday, uh, I'm doing whatever promotion I want or like a personal post. And then Sunday, I'm usually talking about my own training, right? So I'm, I'm like, I know what I'm kind of mm. talking about. I have a general You got your pillars. Kind of like pick what grabs me. And the same thing with memes. Like as funny as it sounds, like, you know, like um, a good example is, you know, a couple of years ago when uh, like a year and a half ago when uh, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. You know, <laughs> yeah. like I, I realize, like I'm not trying to make fun of Chris Rock. Yeah, of course, yeah. But like, that's great content. It's like you know, I can make a nutritional like meme about that using that, and it mm. gets a ton of traction because everybody's posting about those you know, particular things. So again, mm. I think it's just important to have structure and flexibility with that. So I'll I'll do all that stuff I'm kind of talking about, do some writing, and I'll do that usually till about two or three p.m. Uh, and then I'll go train. Uh, and then I'll usually train until about five or six. Uh, I'll come home. That's at the same time when like my son has therapy till five thirty. So my kids usually get home around five, you know, five forty-five or six. Um, and once the kids get home, I'm in dad mode uh, for the rest of the day until they go to bed. And once they go to bed, I'll usually like just do something easy, like do a Q and A or something like that on my Instagram or or put up mm -hmm. stories I missed during the day or read messages or read emails or whatnot. I'll do that for like an hour, hour and a half and then I'll go to bed. So, you know, mm -hmm. the people who are like, oh, I grind, you know, I do 12 hours a day. Cool. I do seven or eight hours a day. Um, but, you know, I make those hours count. And um, I do think when I focus on stuff, I can get what takes most people three or four hours. I can get it done in probably like an hour. I'm, I'm usually pretty speedy when it comes to that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I think, I think like obviously – 
I always talk to people about like work and entrepreneurship. You go, it's like a training program. Sometimes you do periods of high volume where you do 12, 15 hour days. And, and for you to get to where you have, you've done that. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, you, you, you've done that for so long, but people look at now and say, Oh, well, seven, eight hours a day, but that seven, eight hour day, eight hours a day is like the amount of experience that that's, that's the equal of 15 hours a day back in the day. Right. I mean, now this, I've got the snowball rolling. You know what I mean? Now yeah. I'm just kind of giving it a push here and there. You know, I have to keep pushing it up the hill. We're rolling down the hill, you know? Mm. And, um, you know, the other thing I tell people is like, hey, I, I run the marathon. You know, I've always been good at running marathons without ever having actually run a marathon. You know, which Delayed is gratification. Yeah, I'm just like, I don't need it right mm. now. You know, like, I'm, and I, I just know, like, okay, I can do that 14-hour day, but the quality of my work's going to go through, you know? And I'm going to end up getting to the point where I'm feeling burnt out. And I, I've been around people who do those 14-hour days. And guess what happens after a few weeks? They go, oh, I need a week off, you know. And it's like, cool. And here's the tortoise back here. Just put in my eight hours a day. And, okay, see you later, you know, while you're taking your week off, you know. Yeah. So I've always I, – I, I've, I've very rarely dealt with burnout. I mean, I've had burnout from, like, life stuff, which I'm kind of in right now. But I've never like yeah. felt super burnt out from my work more than like maybe a day or two, um, and so I've never like um, one of the complaints I've gotten from you know both of my exes is, well, why don't you ever want to take a vacation? And it's like, well, I don't really ever feel like I need to because like I don't feel like I'm that overwhelmed, you know. Mm. But you know, not that I don't like vacations. I like vacations as much as anybody else. But um, you know, I don't. I don't. I've never gotten to the point where I've been like, man, I need a vacation. You know what I mean? Well, I think it's also because, I mean, when you love what you do, it ain't fucking work, right? Yeah, I mean, some days it's work, but, you know, for the most part, yeah. I'm, you know, pretty pretty, pretty excited and, and I do something that I, I get a great deal of, um, I get a lot of joy out of it. I, mm. I have my days, last few days have been some of those days, but, um, you know, for the most part, I get a lot of meaning out of what I do and so, you know, it, it still feels like work, but it's... You know, it's something that's rewarding, and I think, you know, if you can do stuff that like give you feel is meaningful, uh, I think it's hard to be you know burnt out when you're doing something you feel is meaningful. I agree, and pe- and people see it, right? Like people see it. I think it, it's it's how you build an audience, it's how you build a community because they see the passion, they see that you actually enjoy it, and you'd be doing this stuff whether you're getting paid or not, right? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the good, one of the nice, um, the nicest things I hear from people when they meet me, I, you know, Brian Mark really gave me such a nice compliment, like on stage, but then also off stage. He was like, you know, you're like one of the most genuine dudes I've ever met. Like, you know, how you are is how you are. Like, it's not an act, mm. you know, like, mm. you are very fired up. You're very passionate. You are into it. You know, it's not, it's not some kind of act, you know? And I think, um, you know, I can say after being in the industry 20 years, um, I've got a pretty good motor, you know? Definitely, definitely. Well, look, I want to wrap up with just some fireside questions. So what I'm going to do is, well, it's actually more like fireside comments. I'm going to say a word or a comment, and then I want you to respond with kind of, you know, the first thing that comes to mind with this, okay? Oh, boy. Okay. Weed. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, inappropriately demonized, uh, but also probably the pendulum has swung too far as well, where people like, you know, it's a it's a health thing, and I'm like, yeah. ah, I, I think it's better for you than alcohol for sure. Uh, but you yeah. know, there's you know, there's there's always there's almost always trade offs. But I think as far as like you know, inebriants go. Uh, marijuana seems to be like very, uh, you know, it's basically non-toxic and, and, and very few like long-term side effects. Well, you have a lot of people, I guess, in the motivation space, the entrepreneur space are like, you know, cut this out, cut that out. Don't do that. Don't touch that. And hundred percent, like if you're sitting at home at your parents' place, smoking weed all day and drinking every day and not doing anything with your life, then you should probably stop doing it. Yeah. But like, you know, if, if you're, if you're doing it once in a while to, de-stress and laugh a bit more who cares um left or right right 
<laughs> uh, Biden. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> not a fan. <laughs> not not a fan. Trump. Not particularly a fan either. Uh, but okay. more of a fan of, more of a fan of him. Okay, more of a fan of his policies than I am of Biden's policies. That's what I'll say. Yep. No, I, I definitely agree with that. Biden's Kennedy. As a human being. Kennedy, RFK. Uh Makes some good points, but goes off the deep end with a lot of stuff. Yep. Liver King. Scammer. <laughs> Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan. Uh, tries to get it right. Sometimes gets too impassioned about the wrong stuff, but I think is... is Hearts in the right place. Trying to do his best. Yep. I think it comes from a good place. Election 2024. Shit show. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a Mainst shit show. Yeah. Mainstream media. Not reliable. Government transparency. Doesn't exist. <laughs> America today versus America in 1950. It's a deep. It's a deep one, isn't it? The, the, I think everyone tends to look back with rose-colored glasses. Uh, mm. I don't necessarily think things are worse now than they were back then. Uh, if mm. you look at the actual objective statistics, there's less people living in poverty. If we equate poverty, yeah. like hunger and whatnot, uh, you know, now poverty is, you know, you don't, maybe you don't have a car and you don't have an Xbox. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. not, to, not to minimize it. There are some people living in abject poverty, so I don't want to minimize yeah. it. But it's less, it's more rare now than it was in the 1950s. And violent crime is, is, is I, well, until COVID. Before COVID, mm -hmm. Uh, violent crime was the lowest I think it had ever been. Um, mm. So by and there's more social mobility. I think by most objective measurements, things are actually better now. Uh, but we tend to look back with rose-colored glasses. You know, I think people kind of confused probably the, the cultural wars that is occurring right now. You know, globally, but in particular North America, as like that's where they're looking at it from. But you're right. Like in terms of quality of life, access to food. Everyone having a fridge in their house. Right. Uh, I, always, I always do the comparison. Okay, if I could be the richest person in the world in 1900, or I could be middle class now, which one am I picking? I'm picking middle class now because I've got Netflix, uh, air central air conditioning, and Xbox. Thank you very much. Hmm. Lane at 50. Doing the same dumb shit I'm doing now, probably. <laughs> just just with a few more gray hairs I don't really feel like I've grown up you know like yeah everybody's like oh you got your stuff together I'm like not really <laughs> not really I was saying that to, to uh, so you know I, I put out a, a post yesterday love lift and laugh from a place of gratitude and just that whole concept sometimes of being an inner kid right like I think we lose that as we go through life and marriages and business and stuff like that but you know, I, I'm all for just sometimes being a clown and fucking laughing it out. That's for sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you this. Like, I, I, I kind of told you I got in here. Like, I've been in a, a funk like the last week, and I've been really um, kind of in a dark place. But I, you know, if I step back and I zoom out, um, people like I get asked sometimes like these deep questions, like, "What's the meaning of life? Like, what keeps you going?" Hey, look, everybody goes through bad periods of time. Uh, times where they feel uninspired, times where they mm. feel like things are going to get better. But the reality is, is life is so cyclical. If it's bad now, it's going to get good again, um, unless you continue to make really poor choices. Uh, and if it's good, it's probably going to get bad again at some point as well. And trying not to like judge those periods and just, you know, ride it as much as you can. This I always tell people like, hey, look. The worst possible thing that could happen is I'm dead. And if I'm not dead, I've got options, right? So yeah, I would say that overall, I have been so fortunate to have 
like probably dozens of moments in my life that most people would just kill for hat like one of those. Yeah. Like I, I've had so many amazing moments that were, you know, culminations of like really long, arduous processes. And so I always tell people like, no matter what, like I'm going to ride this thing for everything it's worth. You know, like I, I feel like I've actually had a pretty, you know, despite like me feeling like I've made a lot of mistakes, I feel like I've had a pretty epic life. And I always tell people, hey, you know what? Uh, I'm going to show up and play the game. And, uh, yeah. you know, that might mean I, I burned right. It might mean I crash and burn, but I'm going to go hard, you know, and, and just let the call. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. We all trip and fall. I think, you know, what separates those that actually go out there and realize their full potential is when they fall, they get back up. It's the only choice you have, you know, like yeah. um, I had a friend check on me today and they were like, Hey, how you doing? Are you okay? I'm like, I'm not, but I will be, you know, yeah. I know that, you know, so I think Definitely. you know that it allows you to, even when you're feeling really shit, it allows you to continue pushing forward, you know? And I think that's a mistake a lot of people make is they get, down, they get in the hard part of life and they, they stop moving their feet, you know, because they feel like things mm. are never going to get better. Mm. What I'll say is, like, just keep your feet moving, man. You know, like, even yep. if things are bad, like, just keep pushing forward because eventually you're going to come out of that. And if you keep pushing, you're going to be in a much better position than if you just kind of like said, oh, I'm just going to like take it easy or, you know, not Throw try because hard right now. Mm. You know, keep your feet moving. All right, brother. Well, look, appreciate you coming on today, brother. Um, obviously, guys, if you're listening now, you know where to find Lane. Bylane, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, bylane.com. Go and have some family time now, brother. Appreciate you as always. We'll talk soon. All right. Thanks, All right. Dave. See you, man. Bye.